Good afternoon. Welcome to our afternoon service as we continue to work our way through the wonderful gospel that is John. So we're in John 3, 18 to 21. So John and chapter 3, verse 18 to 21. Last time we looked at John 3, 16. So John 3 and verse 18 through to 21. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And may God bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. We've, we've just read and seen the uncomfortable and deni undeniable truth that there is a judgment for the wicked and the unbelieving. You see that in the verses that I've just read. It isn't something that I made up. It isn't something that comes from a church tradition. It is in the Bible. We see that word again that we looked at last week. We looked at world and whoever, whosoever last week. But see that word, whoever. And last week we saw that the beauty again of that word. There are a lot of Jewish writings in the first century talking about what God would do for Israel. How God would vindicate the Jews. How he would throw off their Roman oppressors. And then in came this word, in burst this word, whoever. No matter Jew, no matter Gentile, whoever believes will be saved. It is a beautiful word. It is a gospel word. This week we see another whoever. You see it in verse 18 there. Um, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. So we have two whoever's. We cannot ignore either one. Both are without exception, without discrimination. Both the whoever of good news, Jew or Gentile, black or white, Asian, Hispanic, male, female, North Korean, South Korean, baby boomer, millennial, old, young, whoever. Wherever you come from, whatever your background is, Wherever you live, what road you live on, what car you drive, what language you speak, what money you have or don't have. Whoever believes in him will be saved, will have eternal life. If that is how the first whoever works, and it gloriously is, then that is how the second whoever must work. It doesn't matter who your father is. It doesn't matter that your grandma played the piano in church. It doesn't matter how rich or deep is the history of Christianity in your family. Whoever does not believe is condemned. Without exception, without discrimination, whoever has to cut both ways. So we have to come to verse 18 after verses 16 and 17. Many people have a Bible that ends at John 3:17. In fact, they have a Bible that only has John 3.16 and John 3.17 in it. 
and possibly they would have Matthew 7 verse 1, judge lest you less judge not lest you be judged that's their bible and then they have maybe they have 1 corinthians 13 because you need something to preach at a wedding and a few other parts but that's it the bible ends at john 3 17 but notice there are verses after that you're smart you can read there are verses after john 3 17 jesus does have something to say maybe you've got a bible that has red letters it probably has verse 16 through 21 in red letters. I'm not a big red letter fan myself, but maybe your Bible does. And it is actually ambiguous whether or not Jesus is speaking. Most tran translations will put quotation marks, assuming and thinking there is good reason to assume that Jesus is continuing to speak here. Could also be there that John the writer is now narrating. But either way, it is the word of God. But most people seem to think that Jesus is the one speaking here. Many of us would prefer a different Jesus. We prefer a Jesus of our own making, a Jesus of unconditional acceptance, a Jesus of limitless hugs and no standards. A Jesus who is into whatever you are into. As someone once said, very well said, God created us in his own image and ever since then we've been returning the favour by creating him in ours. So we like the Jesus who loved the world. He sent his son to die for us that we could have eternal life. We like that. And some people think everything they want to say about God gets just crammed in there and then love becomes this ambiguous super spiritual word that means that you just can't say anything bad to me just don't ever tell me anything i don't want to hear don't you love me don't you know that god is love well of course he is but after 16 and 17 comes 18 the father did not send the son into the world to condemn the world which is true wonderfully true we preach it we pray it we we love it with all of our heart. The mission of the Son was not to retaliate, but to redeem. But yet when the world rejects the Son, who is infinitely worthy and infinitely precious, that rejection cannot be overlooked. Now you may notice these verses use courtroom language. You see it in the English even, but it's more clear in the Greek. In verse 18, it has the language of condemn. Verse 19, and this is the judgment you could translate, this is the verdict. This is what the judge is decreeing as your verdict before the divine tribunal. In, the word in verse 20, we have the word exposed, which elsewhere in John's gospel is translated as to convict. In verse 21, it can be clearly seen or you could translate it to make manifest or to testify. So we, it's all, we have the language of a courtroom, testifying, condemnation, judgment, verdict. The picture we have in John's Gospel is a tale of two trials. There is a trial at the end of the book, the trial of Jesus. And that trial, as you well know, is a travesty of justice, a false witnessing, is a kangaroo court, slanderous accusations. He's found guilty, though he does nothing wrong. And that is one trial. But here is another one. The world stands trial at the beginning of John's Gospel. 
And whereas Jesus's trial was a travesty of justice, when the world stands before God on trial, it will be the fulfillment of justice and God will give his verdict. We all know there is something wrong with the world. The things are not as they should be. We feel that. We see it. So the question is, if things are not the way they should be, there should not be this pain and suffering and affliction and hatred. Why is the world like this? There are two options and everyone in their mind puts somebody on trial. The world isn't how it should be. We all accept that. So someone needs to stand trial for the mess that we are in. A lot of people put God on trial. Look at the world. Look at the state of the world. We put God in the dock. And there he is on trial before us. And we think that we can render a judgment on God for the things he has done or not done. Or we put ourselves in the dock. The famous line from G.K. Chesterton, that, es that essay contest from the famous newspaper, What is Wrong with the World? And these long essays and answers. And then G.K. Chesterton chips in with, Dear Sir, in response to your question, What is Wrong with the World? I am, yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. The world here in verses 18 through 21 stands condemned. Why is the world condemned? Let me take it one step further personalize it why would you or i stand before god and stand condemned well there are three reasons from our text we'll spend most of our time on the third first of all because we already stand condemned the second because of unbelief and thirdly because we love darkness rather than light then why does the world stand condemned or why do we stand condemned on the last day before god Jesus gives one answer, the first answer, because we already stand condemned. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. So we enter the world in need of a saviour. The world was in need of a saviour before God sent his son. We see this teaching in Ephesians 2, where God tells us we are born children of wrath, sons of disobedience. Or Romans 3, that there is no one good, no, not one. So this verse it's not mainly about total depravity or original sin or inherited guilt, but that is the implication in verse 18. The default position that you enter the world is one who stands under the just condemnation of God. Both because Adam was our representative, so we participate with Adam in his sin, and because we inherit that sin. We're actual sinners, inherited corruption, living out depravity. So the question that why do bad things happen to good people? Well, I've mentioned this before. The Bible's question is the opposite. Why do good things happen to anyone? You may ask the question, what about the innocent tribesman somewhere in Africa who has never heard of Jesus? Will he be condemned? That kind of hypothetical question to try and trip people up. The answer is no, the innocent tribesman who has never heard of Jesus will not be condemned. You say, well, pastor, are you sure? Yes, the innocent tribesman who has never heard of Jesus will not be condemned. The only problem is he does not exist. There's no innocent tribesman anywhere. We all enter the world as sinners. 
inheriting the guilt from Adam, living out sin from day to day. As Romans 1 tells us, we see the truth about God. We see from creation his eternal power, his divine attributes, and we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Last time we looked about the world hating God. Well, if it is shocking that God would love the world enough to send his son, then it should not be surprising when he judges the unrepentant, unbelieving world that lives in disobedience to his son. Why will we stand condemned? Because we're already condemned, entering into the world with both sin and guilt. Secondly, why does the world stand condemned? Why do you or I stand condemned? Why would we receive that condemnation from God? Because of unbelief. You see that at the verse, end of verse 18. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. God has all believers in mind, sorry, all unbelievers in mind, but especially those in open contempt to the gospel. As one commentator put it, to refuse his gift is to be judged. Do you realise that to be in a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church on Sunday is the greatest privilege of your life and the position of greatest danger? It's the greatest privilege because if the preacher is doing his job, you get to hear words of life. How to be saved, how to be, to be forgiven, how to live forever and dangerous because you'll be judged for the light that you receive. If you remember, Jesus said, Woe to you, Bethsaida, Chorazin, the cities in which he had done his miracles. He said it would be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you on that day. Jesus said it would be better for those quintessentially immoral pagan cities then it will be for you religious people who heard of me who saw me who knew me and rejected me think of all they saw in jesus's day they saw the healings the exorcisms the walking on water the feeding of the five thousand the witnesses to the cross and the empty tomb how many believed not many think of Many, think of many things that you know. How many sermons have you heard? How many Bible studies? Maybe you have a Bible in every house. Sorry, in every room of your house. You have Christian books, Christian education. The benefits that some people and some places have of being in a Christian culture. We, we, we think that unbelief is no big deal. Unbelief, at least in part, is a failure to recognise the immeasurable greatness of the Son of God. It is a failure to recognise who Jesus is. We're talking about a faith that means something, not only in a sense, but a trust, a treasuring of Christ. To know all that you know of Christ and to be indifferent to him. How is that a small sin? Think of all that Jesus has done. All that God has done in sending his son. And we think unbelief is no big deal. We think indifference to Christ is no big deal. Unbelief is I'm not impressed. I'm not grateful. I'm not enthralled. Unbelief. I'll give a third reason now. And this is where we will spend the remainder of our time this afternoon. Why is the world condemned? Because of being condemned already with sin and guilt. Because of unbelief. There is much more that the Bible says about both those things. But here the focus in verses 19, 20 and 21 is we stand condemned because we love darkness 
rather than light. Jesus said it's about what you love and about what you hate. This is the judgment, verse 19. Light has come into the world and people love darkness. In verse 20, whoever does wicked things hates the light. There's a simple, straightforward, painful explanation for unbelief in the world and for unbelief in your heart. And then in verse 19 and 20, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. The explanation for so much unbelief. People prefer darkness to light. People reject the gospel because they want to live the way they want to live. There's a preference for walking in darkness rather than the light. The head can come up with all kinds of reasons to justify the heart. We're not so much rational people as we are rationalising people. The smarter you are, the better you are at it. You know how to come up with the right framework that gets you to let you do the things that you already have decided that you want to do. And Christians have their fair share of failures and hypocrites. The point is not that non-Christians do bad things and Christians don't. The point is that we should not imagine that the great intellectuals are just writing and reasoning apart from their own moral inclinations. They have a preference for darkness rather than light. Aldous Huxley wrote the book Brave New World. Huxley was one of the 20th century's most renowned intellectuals. He died on the same day as JFK and C.S. Lewis on the 22nd of November 1963. There have been different books written about that. That these three men who were so different, JFK, C.S. Lewis and Aldous Huxley died on the same day. Well, in a moment of candour, this is what Huxley said about his own nihilism. It is the belief in nothingness. He believed in nothingness. Nothing matters. No moral code. Huxley said, for myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaningless was especially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from the system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. So one of the greatest 20th century intellects, apparently, in a moment of candour, said that we did have moral commitments, we had a way we wanted to live, we had a freedom, we had a liberation, we developed a system to support that. We think unbelief leads to immorality, and it can. But I, I would argue immorality normally leads to unbelief. Or put another way, unbelief is moral before it is intellectual. We have a certain way we want to live. We have certain things that we prefer. We have certain things that our world tells us are inviolable standards of freedom. And if God gets in the way of them, then God must be reshaped. That's what we see today. The world says that these are inviolable invi invi standards of freedom. And if God gets in the way, then God is wrong. God must be reshaped. The purpose of the light coming into the world is to draw the world to it. But the light exposes and unmasks the darkness. So the coming of Jesus divides. It was said at the very beginning, announcing Jesus' birth, Simeon, this one will be for the 
fallen of many in Israel. His sword will pierce your heart. He will divide. That's what light does. We do not blame Jesus. You are what you love and you get what you love. Jesus said they hate the light. They hate it. Why do they hate the light? Light makes you conscious of guilt. We hate Christ, the word, the truth. Light is painful when you're in the darkness. We hate the light, not just because it exposes, but because darkness is our natural habitat. You can't expect bats to start flying at midday. Just as light exists in, in of God, so the world exists in and of darkness. So let me ask you the painful question. Are you running from Christ? Are you far from Christ? Have you convinced yourself that you're not going to be real serious about Christ. But you know deep down you ought to be. You know deep down the right way to live. So because you're in darkness and he is light, you keep him at arm's length. You keep Christians at arm's length. You keep the church at arm's length. And yes, you may be very smart and have lots of intellectual problems, but if you're honest, it isn't those intellectual problems that stand in the way. It's not even that somebody hurt you in the church, so that does happen. It's that you love darkness rather than light. Many of us have not realised how comfortable we are with darkness. We can't see the darkness until we begin to squint and look at the light. John Piper wrote a blog post a few years ago and it's entitled, Why There Are No Windows in Pawn Shops. Let me quote part of that. He says, do you know why there are no windows in adult bookshops? Do you know why there are no windows in certain kinds of nightclubs in the city? I suppose your answer would be, well, because they don't want people looking in and getting a free sight. That's not the only reason. Because they don't want people looking out at the sky. You know why? Because the sky is the enemy of lust. Piper goes on, If you look back on your struggles, the sky is a great power against lust. Pure, lovely, wholesome, beautiful, powerful, large-hearted things cannot abide the soul of a sexual fantasy at the same time. Piper writes, There's something about bigness, about beauty, that helps battle against the puny, small, cruddy use of the mind to fantasise about sexual things. It's very good what he writes because it, ex it, it's, it just helps us understand that light exposes darkness and light casts out darkness. Get outside, look at the stars, sit under the sun, see light in the midst of darkness. What are you looking at? How are you walking? The verdict from God's judgment seat is that light has come. The people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And people did not want their deeds to be exposed. Verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. The Greek word for exposed is elenexi. The same word in John 16.8 where it says the spirit will come to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, to expose. The light in chapter 3 exposes darkness. The Holy Spirit in chapter 16 exposes sin. 
It is the work of the Holy Spirit to shine light into the dark places of our lives, to convict us of sin, to expose the darkness. He shines a light and the Holy Spirit is trying to do a work in your life this afternoon to shine a light into a dark place and you do not want to look at the light. It may just be a pinhole of light breaking into your darkness. And you don't want it there because you don't want the Holy Spirit messing around in your world. You don't want God in your darkness. But there he is. Are you going to look at the light? Stare at it and squint at it? Or will you put a pillow over your head and another blanket and bury yourself in the darkness? The Holy Spirit is speaking to some of you through his word. Would you hear his voice? Don't run and hide. Run to Christ. And fourthly, let me finish with a word of hope. Lest you think that all we have to look forward to is condemnation for our sin. Condemnation for our unbelief. Condemnation because we love darkness rather than light. Notice a little phrase at the end of verse 21. Whoever does what is true comes to the light. So it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. If you love light, Jesus does not say congratulations. You are intrinsically a better person. You had better parents. Give yourself a pat on the back. No, he says, if that is you, it's because God is at work in you. It's only because the spirit has blown to give you new birth. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, it is of God, in God and through God. So friends, this isn't fatalism. God calls you to come. He beckons to you to do the truth, to walk according to the truth. Admit your sin, free from hypocrisy. Respond to the gospel invitation. The spirit is a spotlight into the dark place of your heart saying, you don't have to live like that. If you live there, you'll die there. But you don't have to die there. There's a sky to see. There is bigness. There there is beauty. There are colours. There is a sun. There is light. Oh, my dear friend, come, come, run out of your bondage, out of darkness, into the light. May it be so for his glory and for his name's sake. Amen.